Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show, and each month we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. This month, our guest is Dr. Camille Farrington, who is a senior research associate at the Consortium on Chicago School Research. Search. Welcome, Camille. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Um, to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being part of our family of over 5,000 listeners per month. Uh, we're anxious and uh, very excited to be back on the air, and to our new listeners, uh, we're glad to have the, you join us. Um, today, we're going to discuss the work at the consortium, specifically focused on high school reform and high school uh, under, better understanding how high schools uh, could do um, uh, a better job. And so uh, first I want to ask Camille if you could tell us a little bit about your um, work in Chicago. Sure. So um, my background is as a high school teacher. I taught high school for 15 years uh, and then went back to school and got my PhD in education policy. So for the past nine years, I've been researching the places that I used to work and uh, really trying to understand, particularly trying to understand uh, failing students and and why it is that our high schools produce such kind of overall poor outcomes. And when you think about the kind of enormous potential that that adolescents have, and they go into high school with all kinds of hopes and dreams, and too often they come out the other side of that uh, feeling like they don't really have much of a possibility for a good future and that they don't really have anything to contribute. So it seems to me that there's something going on in that system that really needs to fundamentally change, and so that's really the work I've been focused on for the past nine years is really trying to understand that black box and, and how we can improve it. Sure. You know, um, there there are countless conversations that I've certainly witnessed and been a part of about um, how long we've uh, been at trying to change the what what's happening in in high schools, but in the K twelve uh, uh, continuum altogether. But but specifically in high schools that. So we've learned so much uh, in the both from the brain and developmental uh, research. Um, we've learned a lot, but it's, it seems as um, not much has changed. Um, can you tell us some of the things that jump out most to you uh, that that in terms of developmentally that we've learned and we've really not um, widespread adopted those as a as a matter of education practice. Yeah, so one thing is just how social learning is, and particularly for adolescents that that uh, really true of people at any age, though. We learn by communicating and talking to each other and kind of collectively building our understanding of things, but we still design high school as if learning is very much an individual achievement and and uh, 
collaborating is you know thought of as cheating and so that one thing right off the bat is is just um moving towards um something that is a much more kind of social cognitive approach to learning and then the second piece is that we really understand that people work really hard when they care about the goal and when they believe they're doing meaningful work and too often we uh give kids kind of practice work to build really isolated skills or kind of content knowledge that they don't really know what the point of the knowledge is and they don't see the kind of big picture of what it's building towards rather than setting them loose on solving real problems and being able to kind of develop uh, skills and knowledge as they go in service of solving those problems. And so we we know that um, people are much more motivated when, when the, all of those pieces kind of come together in some meaningful work. And but we have kind of continued to use a really kind of 19th century, um, here's a bunch of knowledge that you should learn, even though, at, you know, at this point, anybody can kind of look up anything on, on the Internet if they actually wanted, uh, you know, to know a piece of knowledge. So we've moved way beyond the knowledge as the person who knows the most or, you know, the educated person is the person who has the most facts in their head and we know now people need to be able to do stuff with what they know and with the skills that they have. But in schools, we still don't give kids meaningful work to do to actually apply all of that. Sure. Now, I hear that a lot. What? So you, you mentioned somewhat abstractly work that they care about. Give me some examples of what you've seen that is actual meaningful work. What 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 is it that we might structure that that kids in high school would say, see, I enjoy doing this. This is this is what I like doing. What what might you uh, suggest? So um, examples would be uh, just what are problems that are facing their community and how can they do something about that. So examples would be in Chicago we have uh, – you know a big problem with uh, youth violence and or you know violence broadly and a lot of kids get kind of caught up in the crossfire of that but putting kids to the question of how do we solve that problem seems like a really good use of their energy and they have unique insights into figuring out um what might be done and what they need in order to uh create better communities for themselves and so that would be an example of of a of a particular project that they could be working on. There was a, actually a, an elementary school in Chicago, um Polaris that uh, there I think they were in 6th grade and took on that exact question and uh created this whole peacemakers project where they interviewed the police chiefs and the aldermen and all kinds of folks working for peace and trying to understand what the um contributors to violence were and and those kids over the course of a year um created first they wrote a book and then they also uh, really built civic um engagement skills for themselves and understood the process of making change in a community and so I would argue that that that's a, the kind of example of um, of a project that really engages young people's hearts and minds. Sure, and I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. 
Um, and as as one of the those students that actually would have benefited from more of that, um, you know, just just because of the way that my personal learning style is more about uh, doing. But you know, uh, d developmentally, what we know is that it's not only children that learn that way; it's the whole developmental continuum from from very early childhood to uh, uh, late in life adults that the experience of uh, of using your hands and talking about it um, is something that um, that actually engages the brain in a different way uh, that we know gives gives rise to longer term retention of the information. Um, but we still have critics that say, okay, so you you want us to do projects, so we've done projects, but how do we then turn around and assess uh, an individual's learning and what they've mastered. Uh, what's your answer to that? So I, I think that if we have strong sets of standards, of academic standards, whether they be content knowledge or performance standards, that we can use those standards to assess young people's work. And it's really important that the standards be clear to kids so that they know what it is that they're working towards. But in the context of almost any kind of project, you could you could still ultimately assess students on do they know this set of knowledge and have they applied it in a way that shows that they really understand it. And have they developed the skills to be um, effective at what they, you know, sought to do. And so I, I think that we, if we stick to, you know, go by a good set of standards and we are assessing kids against those standards, then that opens up all kinds of flexibility in terms of the projects or the um, particular kinds of work that we engage them in. Sure, sure. And, and you know, um, you know, one of the things that I, I think about um uh, with regard to the all the different ways in which not just uh, students, but you know, students, um, adults, um, early childhood, all learn differently. But um, we we seem still stuck on test-based accountability. And in fact, you one of your first uh, in your report uh, that Wallace report on developmental needs, and it indicates, you say, uh, that one of the implications um, is that uh, the current policy emphasis on content knowledge and test-based accountability actually undermines practitioners' ability to provide developmental experiences. Say a little more about that. Yeah, so so we, in this report, so it's uh, called Foundations for Young Adult Success, a developmental framework, and and my colleagues Jenny Nagaoka and Stacey Ehrlich and Ryan Heath and I um, worked on this with a, a group of doc students as well over the course of the last year and a half, and we really were trying to pull together literature across a broad number of disciplines to understand what matters for young adult success and how do young people develop those things that matter from early childhood up through you know 20 years old and in that we one of the things that we uh pointed to was that 
that what kids experience is really critical to how they develop. And so we have to be thinking about what is it that kids are doing uh, while they're in school or when they're in after-school programs or whether when they're at home. Like what kinds of experiences are they ha- having that would allow them to uh, develop the kinds of skills and competencies that we generally uh, adults would agree are really important for long-term success. And some of those things have to do with kind of practicing and playing around with things. We use the word tinker, um, encountering new things, having the opportunity to kind of practice and fail at things and uh, and in order to get good over time, and then also the opportunity to really contribute something meaningful. And through that, when we talk to teachers particularly, I think that that they generally agree that they became teachers because they care about the well-being of their kids and want them to have a good life and want to help prepare them for that. But I think they feel under enormous pressure to not engage in the kinds of things that they might want to engage in because they have to cover this content that's going to be on the test because the test is what really is how they, the teacher is going to be evaluated, how the school is going to be evaluated. And particularly when we look in places like Chicago that you know closed 50-some schools last year, those are real threats. Like if you don't make the test scores, or um, those are real threats. And so teachers feel like they um, have to focus just on the content knowledge piece and cannot really take, you know, have the luxury to develop uh, some of of these other kinds of experiences for kids that would uh, allow them to be kind of more holistically uh, um, learning and developing. And then the second piece that's really critical is that tests really – uh, kind of emphasize the idea that you that we can figure out exactly like just how smart you are, and we see that the same kids get the high test scores year after year. Um, test scores don't really change that much for any individual kid over time, and so it really reinforces the notion to young people that some kids are smart and some kids are not so smart. Some kids really struggle, and and it really kind of uh, this kind of fixed mindset that you know you you either have it or you don't which is the total wrong message and is actually not even factually accurate in terms of brain development and and the um plasticity of of the of the brain and so we when we want to be emphasizing the idea that working really hard and trying and failing and trying and failing is how you learn and how you get better we have we have not structured schools at all to encourage that process, and instead we kind of um, penalize kids for failure and treat it as it's some kind of aberration or some kind of personal shortcoming rather than the natural part of learning. Sure, and you know I'm I'm really glad you brought up about you know teachers and their uh, you know ability uh, to do uh, developmentally appropriate. Um, uh, assignments and exp- give the students developmentally appropriate um, experiences um, is something that I've I've questioned for quite a while. Um, I started my career in education um, as a professor in 
teacher preparation in the, on the pre-service side for teacher uh, education. And I remember thinking, as I saw the list of courses, in addition to all the other things they had to learn, uh, the university where I taught um, uh, went a long way further than some um, to offer at least one course in what we're going to call education psychology um, to an undergraduate. And so that's one semester. So we're talking about you know, 15 weeks of three, hour, uh, three hours per week. Um, in, and in that course, they had to learn kind of everything they need to know to get started about developmental learning theory, uh, about testing, norm and criterion reference testing, and on and on and on. And I just wonder um, about, you know, when we start as much as we talk about our expectations for teachers to be able to um, to create these developmentally appropriate experiences, but especially the pre-service teacher that's not, you know just out of college or just out of graduate school, being able to deliver on that. How much do you think, you know, to our kind of higher education policymakers, what would be your recommendation about um, getting teachers the the, the right amount of uh, developmental education. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a great point. And and likewise, when I was, you know, when I went to teacher school, I took, you know, a class in adolescent psychology, I think. And at the time, I, you know, I thought it was interesting, but I don't know that I immediately saw how this applies to school because there was a lot of you know kind of Piaget and you know how what what uh, different stages at which uh, people have kind of different cognitive abilities and a lot of that is, is actually we're learning is not necessarily exactly uh, true and that it's not as scripted as that but what I would love to see is that we start with development we start with where is this young person at what's the what matters to them where what are they um getting good at what do they need opportunities to really build given whatever age they are and that we start there and then we say okay how would you build experiences for this person and if if uh, we are not learning development in the abstract but as the foundation for us to think about, okay, how would you design a, a set of experiences for this person at this developmental stage so that much more integration with between development and curriculum and instruction and assessment, uh, I think that that would go a long way um, by yeah. just taking that developmental approach. Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, to our uh, listeners, uh, we are with Dr. Uh, Camille Farrington, who is a senior research associate at the University of Chicago Consortium on Chicago School Research. If you're just joining us, I want to invite uh, you to call in at this time. Uh, those of you who don't have the number, is 657-383-1481. We're going to continue our conversation, uh, again, 657-383-1481 with uh, Dr. Camille Farrington. Um, if you would like to also um, send an email with your uh, any question you might have, you can do so at bp58 at columbia.edu. Again, bp58 at columbia.edu. 
Um, one of the, the I, it's a fascinating report, uh, very well done. Uh, I'd like to commend you, uh, Camille, for the job you did on this. Uh, and uh, I see it's uh, uh, sponsored at least and supported by the Wallace Foundation. Um, an amazing uh, developmental framework you have very early on in the uh, in the report. And for those of you who don't have the report, you can go to my website. There's a link right here on the uh, website for the radio broadcast. Uh, you can get the report in its entirety. Uh, there's a link there. Um, this uh, uh, framework you have, it's Foundations for Young Adult Success. And, um, in, and interestingly, one, one aspect of this um, I, I want to point out and get you to talk a little bit about, about the development experiences that build um, um, to success. And success is something that has been a very uh, debated topic. What do, you, what do you define as success? And so I'd like to hear a little bit about those of you at uh, the consortium say a few words about what, what, you, what you have as success. Yeah, that was that was where we started. Is uh, you know we're we're backwards design people, so we wanted to start with okay, what's the what's the goal and what's the picture that we're trying to work towards, and so where success uh, has become defined, particularly in education circles, as career and college readiness, and so the idea that. Uh, we measure that by do kids go to college, do they stay in college and persist to a degree, or do they get some, uh, you know, are they able to transition into the workforce and get uh, some, you know, life-sustaining wage. But we wanted to broaden, well, those two things are critically important, but we wanted to broaden success to something beyond that. Because I think if you ask most adults um, or most parents what do, what do they want for their kids, uh, they don't usually just say college and career readiness. They care about a whole wealth of other kinds of uh, aspects of life, and so they want, um, you know, they want their kids to be happy. They want them to be able to kind of choose their own future and and be able to pursue their dreams and be able, and and realize uh, whatever goals they they pursue. And they want that, them to be in relationships that are fulfilling to them and doing work that's meaningful. And so we took a that much broader picture of success and really thought about success as a young people able to pursue their own goals and um and social goals, um community goals and and know how to go about doing those and having the skills and the competencies and um and knowing how to make the connections with people in order to to realize those dreams and so we we held that up as our vision of success as we as we uh, then worked backwards and said okay what 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 leads to that sure we have a caller from um area code 248 in Michigan um caller are you there Hello, Brian Perkins, Renee Beckley, your classmate from Grambling here. I've okay. got a question for the doctor. How you doing? Okay. Doc, my question is, I went to school late 70s, early 1980s. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you what I witnessed. It was focused on the high-achieving students, the A's, the honor rolls. Mm-hmm. 
the, the sea level and under these, these, whatever, F. Okay, they're not going to learn anyway. Well, we'll just give them what they can do. And it, really they were more focused on the high achievers. Mm-hmm. And you see they'll list, they're going to this college. They made this on the row. Everybody else was just mainstream. Okay, you do the work, you graduate the end. So, mm-hmm. and I see that still today. Is there mm-hmm. a way to stop that? Because I think that's a lot of the problem right there, why a lot of these schools come in with the low scores and they're below average, and it's usually in the inner city. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's a question. Thank okay, you for well, thank you. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that question. So, so um, last year I I wrote a book called Failing at School, and it really takes on exactly the the situation that you were just describing, which is for the last hundred years, high schools have been designed to figure out who are the top achieving kids and to educate those uh, those kids and. And everybody else is really is an afterthought in this system. The the high schools as they currently function were not designed to educate everybody. They really were designed um, back in the day when some five percent of kids went to high school. The goal was to figure out who is going to make it and weed out everybody else, and then we'll just focus our resources on those top five percent. And we have kept that same system even though we have entirely different sets of goals and the teachers who teach within the system have very different goals that's not why they became teachers it wasn't just to to pick the top you know a, a kids but the system itself perpetuates this widespread failure because that's what it was designed to do and i i really fundamentally believe that if we are going to um to do right by young people and allow them to reach the enormous potential that each and every one of them has, then we have to move away from a system that immediately tries to stratify them into here's the A kids and here's maybe the B kids and everybody else. We're just, you know, we don't really have uh, much expectation for. And so we really... fundamentally need to rethink that selection and stratification system. Thank you so much for your question. We now have another caller calling from 303, um, Eric Code. Um, thank you, caller. State your name and your question, please. Hi, thanks for taking my call. My name is Ben, and I'm a high school principal in the Denver area. And, and here's my question. I've been listening to your narrative, and I have your report in front of me, and there's a lot of things to think about at the, the system level. Um, in the policy level, but I'm not there yet. And there's a lot of people there uh, like me that are that are sharing these thoughts, but at the moment are in positions to impact high school or you know their high schools and have the opportunity to change the context for their ninth through twelfth grade students, but not yet at the system level. Um, what would you say to to those in in my position as far as good first steps to make an impact for the kids at the the school level, um, since we're not yet at the system level? Yeah, that's a great question. So so a, a couple things. One is that um, I was just talking about kind of the history of high schools. And over the course of this 100-year history, we've kind of gone back and forth between policies that really reinforce this selection and stratification kind of thing. You know, and examples of that would be, you know, class rank or various things that really emphasize um, 
rewarding kids at the top and kind of penalizing everybody else. And then we also, the pendulum has swung to much more kind of equitable uh, policies that w- that also kind of coexist in high schools that um, really try to say how do we identify the kids that most need support and make sure that they are doing as well and getting all the opportunities um, to to really develop as well. And so one thing I think that's really important to do is just kind of do an an internal audit of what policies do we have in place and which of them fall in this selection and stratification uh, category and which of them fall in more of an equity and excellence category. And then the ones that fall in the selection and stratification category just figure, well, what can we do about that to move them to more of an equity and excellence focus? And part of that is the one kind of test question is, what happens to kids who fail or what happens to to kids who who really struggle? And are they uh, supported and um, really held up and and believed in and and promoted, or are they uh, or on the flip side, are they kind of cut out of the picture? And so that's a you know that's just kind of a, a test question. The second thing is just the opportunity. Um, what opportunities do kids have to develop competence over time, and how can we structure the time, instructional time, and um, opportunities to revisit material they didn't really uh, master the first time? So what are the opportunities for for kids to um, really grapple with, with stuff they're struggling with in order to get good at it instead of just moving on to the next thing? And then the third thing I would say is just uh, what opportunities are we giving kids to do really meaningful work? Well, wow, we have, uh, this has been such an amazing time together. Um, I'm delighted to you have joined us. At a later time and and, uh, spend some more time talking a little bit about your a uh, little more about your your report uh but again just want to thank you um for spending the time with us uh we're going to ask our uh listeners to join us next month uh where we have uh on September 23rd we have uh Dr. Jordan Shapiro uh who's going to join us he's the associate director for digital innovation um at Temple University Um, He's going to be our guest. So ask you to join us. And so until next time, go well, stay well. Take care. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you.